real scenarios to begin with. Picture Donald McNeil in Cape Breton, which is the bottom picture there, writing to his brother in North Uist, top picture, in 1846, after a 20-year period of unanswered letters. The potato famine that had caused Donald to flee the Hebrides, he found when he got to Cape Breton, had also blighted Cape Breton. The best farms had been bagged by earlier generations of Hebridean settlers, and he was struggling to support his family of nine children. The wheel may turn, he wrote, perhaps more in hope than in uh, uh, conviction. Second scenario, picture in the same year, 1846, uh, Mrs. Robertson, seven months pregnant when she embarked at Aberdeen on a ship bound for Montreal. She'd never seen the sea before, and she started to be sick even even before the ship left the harbour, and she gave birth prematurely during the voyage. Uh, She died, the baby died, they were both put over the side, leaving her distraught husband and seven children sailing on to Canada. Quote from her husband, her distraught husband, writing to his in-laws back in Aberdeenshire as they sailed up the St. Lawrence, how I wish the ship would strike a rock so that we would all be drowned. Unquote. Scenario three. Fast forward 40 years to the prairies. Picture a Hebridean crofter family bound for Manitoba found themselves living in a sod house, breaking virgin prairie ground, 1,500 miles from the sea, because they were crofter fishermen, that's where they'd been brought up, and miles from their nearest neighbours, and their nearest neighbours, in any case, were non-English-speaking Central Europeans. Countess of Aberdeen, um, who visited the settlement in, um, infant settlement in 1890, wrote, the struggle to live has swallowed up all their energy. And final scenario... Again, late 19th century, but further east, um, picture a young child uh, packed off to Ontario from a children's home, um, contact with family in Scotland severed at the behest of the institution, sent to a remote farm and subjected to physical and or sexual abuse by the employer. Uh, child asks for help from the local minister or the local school teacher and the community closed ranks against the immigrant. And as one boy wrote back to the Abelauer orphanage, which is the top picture there, If I ever set foot in the old country, it will be no more Canada for me. Now, those are just a few snapshots of the stressful scenarios that could be part and parcel of the migrant experience. And what is it that determined whether the migrants triumphed over that sort of adversity, whether they uh, simply endured it, or whether they crumbled under it? What happened? How did they deal with the various grenades that life could throw at them? Well... Thank you for this, this opportunity to explore some of these things, to, to sketch in um, some pieces in the, in the jigsaw of a study that's really just beginning to get uh, underway, but which I hope will, um, funding permitting, um, develop into something uh, a lot bigger and interdisciplinary. Funding permitting is probably the, the key phrase there. Um, what I'd like to do in terms of a route map for the next uh, 25 minutes or so is to explore the origins of the, the project on which I'm embarking, um, suggest some key research questions, and then put some of that source material to use in tackling a few specific issues. So first of all, then, the, the origins, uh, the rationale, and the methodology. Um, this time last year in Toronto, I, I met up with um, Angela McCarthy, whom some of you know. She's been working on this subject in, in New Zealand, and we discussed the lack of a similar sort of enterprise or, or, or exercise um, in, that's incorporated North America, where, of course, after all, most of the people we're looking at went. So we decided it would be a good idea if we could develop some sort of comparative, um, international comparative dimension, uh, focusing initially on Canada. So that would be comparing two dominions, comparing um, uh, 
New Zealand and Canada. Now, since then, I've been to Dunedin for further collaboration with, with Angela, and in the autumn, I have, this, is, this is actually a completely new project. I haven't done anything on it yet except a little bit of background reading and sort of working out what I want to do. Um, in the autumn, I'm going to embark on the Canadian dimension, looking at asylum records in Nova Scotia and uh, British Columbia. So that's the basic rationale. Why um, do we want to do this? Well, there are foundations for scholarship, but there's still a big gap to be filled. Um, The bottom line is that it's an aspect of the Scottish diaspora that's never been systematically scrutinised. Studies of Scottish migration, of which there have been many, many um, in recent years, tend to portray overseas relocation as either um, adventure or exile. Um, The the historiography um, in the, the... Well, that's how it's portrayed from this end. And then the historiography in the former settlement colonies uh, tends to focus on the successful adaptation of migrants, the the great Scot theory. But wherever Scots have settled or wherever they've sojourned, and in all eras, it was the norm rather than the exception to encounter some difficulties in adjustment. I think you wouldn't expect anything different. Um, And these difficulties can certainly be winkled out from the emigrants' own comments and from the, the observations of others about them. And the impact of that dislocation could range from mild to severe. And in severe cases, some migrants would be admitted to psychiatric hospitals and uh, might be deported. Now, a practical factor to add to the rationale is that we have uh, the sources available to enable us to track the asylum experiences systematically. And then pedagogically, doing this kind of investigation should give us an alternative perspective on that of the successful Scot, the the kind of jock-spotting phenomenon that you find in a lot of the the historiography. Um, It's a reminder that not everybody settled and adjusted painlessly. And in a Canadian context, it raises questions, it raises a lot of questions about official attitudes uh, and policies. I was speaking to Alison about this yesterday a little little bit. Um, The context, the the extent, for example, to which governments use the weapon of deportation and used it particularly in a a Canadian um, environment, a Canadian context. The study area that I'm focusing on, and I can explain why a little bit um, in in the the discussion, if you like, is two areas, really, Nova Scotia and British Columbia. I won't say more about that at the the moment. What about the key sources, then? Well, the key sources, on the basis of what I've done so far, which is is not much, really, just looking at the Scottish end and a little bit in New Zealand, the key sources are the asylum records, um, warrants, submission and discharge registers, and case notes. Material that gives us quantifiable information, uh, demographic information about factors like age, uh, gender, marital status, religion, and as well, of course, the diagnosis and predisposing causes of of illness. And generally speaking, the records seem to have followed a similar template, not an identical template, but a similar template in Britain and the Dominions. We get basically the same information. We do get differences, but we get basically the same information. And then, well, that's just a follow-up of that. Um, there are variations. Um, for example, Ontario has, has uh, dangerous or suicidal um, address of friends if convicted before admission, etc. And then Scotland, but come back to that if you like. Um, other sources which can be linked, I hope, to the patient, well, more than I hope, but they can be linked to the patient registers in a quantifiable way are the shipping registers. Now, that's not a challenge to read every last line on the the screen. But the shipping registers, which from 1890 record all all outward and inward movement from and to Britain in respect of non-European ports. 
And these are useful for this purpose because we can search for the individuals who were either uh, rejected at port of entry, and if they were rejected at that port of entry, this is um, indicated in the outward bound register by a note alongside the, the passenger's name, or people who were subsequently returned and ended up in mental institutions back in Scotland. So you can trace these um, either in the outward bound registers, the BT27, or in the inward bound registers, BT26. And then we can make um, a further nominal uh, record linkage by using deportation records from the country that rejected the immigrants. Now, I've dipped into the Canadian records to a, a, a small extent. I haven't done the, the, the kind of um, listings. What I've done is look at, at, at correspondence relating to deportation. So I, I've not got very far with this yet. And I, cert I certainly don't know how far these sort of records were standardised across the Dominion. So I'd be interested in any comments and, and any help on, on that. But what does seem to be the case, however, and this is quoting from the foreword to Barbara Roberts' book, Whence They Came, what does seem to be the case is that Canada's record in deporting immigrants was by far the worst in the entire British Commonwealth. That was, that was uh, said by um, Irving Abella in, in Roberts' book. The, entire, the, worst, the worst in the entire British Commonwealth. And as I say, what I've also discovered from the Canadian records is that they're useful in a qualitative as well as a quantitative way. And they do contain a lot of information about government attitudes and, and policy and tensions, where you get people who'd been deported writing back or writing to the, to the Canadians saying, you know, I want to get back into Canada. You deported me X years ago, but this was completely unjustified. I wasn't mentally ill. I just happened to be walking along the railway track because I'd lost my, my way, this, this sort of thing. Another source um, is coroner's inquest records, particularly for suicides. Um, Angela's looked at them in New Zealand, and I've established that the records exist uh, for my study area. And then a few weeks ago, thanks to the help of an archivist friend, I was introduced to this wonderful new source, uh, for, new for me anyway, the petitions that were generated by the Presumption of Life Limitation Scotland Act. Um, these are petitions to have declared dead people who'd been missing, usually overseas, for a number of years, for more than seven years. Now, I've only dipped a toe into these uh, so far, but some of the material does touch on the mental health of migrants, and I think it's going to be worth exploring them a little bit further. And then, of course, there are the, the, the soft sources that we can deploy, letters, diaries, newspaper accounts, fictional writings, uh, and so on. There's also the possibility of using ship's logs, uh, for comments on the, the mental condition of migrants at sea, at least the mental condition of migrants whose uh, condition gave rise to such concern that they, they, would, they would be logged. One of my former colleagues thinks that's a wild goose chase, but I would be interested in, in comments and, and, and suggestions there. Okay, um, how to put all this to use then? What's the methodology? Um, I'd like to use the various nominal records if I can to establish a relational database that will let us hopefully pinpoint patterns relating to migration and, and mental illness. I can say more in the discussion. I'd like to make it powerful and, and flexible enough to be harnessed to the database that Angela's developing in or has developed in, in New Zealand and user-friendly so that others can feed information into it. For example, I have a student, a PhD student, who's working on a similar theme on the prairies and she'll be going to look at asylum in, uh, records in Manitoba. And then I'd like to be able to interrogate it um, with key research questions. Now, I have a long list of research questions which I don't want to put up on the screen. I haven't, there isn't time to address today. But um, certainly we have this miscellany of records that tells us all sorts of things about the struggles that migrants had or some migrants had with their relocation overseas and the ways in which those struggles manifested themselves in alcoholism, domestic violence, attempted suicide, etc., etc. 
Now, sometimes they tell us explicitly. Sometimes we have to work out the significance from implicit comments. So, I see it's quarter to 12, so I'll put the sources to work for the rest of the time. Let's begin with the migrants themselves, look at some of the potential triggers for illness, and I hinted at some of those triggers in those introductory scenarios. You would include things like the pain of parting, the traumas of the voyage, disappointed expectations, an environment that was hostile. Having looked at the triggers, I want then to look at um, some of the Disin, well, motives, I guess, uh, disingenuous motives among both, both the, the donor and the host nations in having these people um, detained and sometimes deported. And then since the paper's about Canadian theory and practice, we'll finish off with, with Canada. Okay, triggers uh, for, men, for, for um, mental illness and instability then. Pain of parting and the voyage. The pictures there, well, the, the one on the right is the Customs House Key in Greenock, on the west coast of Scotland, from where most of the emigrant ships left. The picture on the left is a a painting called A Coronach in the Backwoods, and you you maybe can't see because it's too too small a picture, but the woman has received a letter from home, presumably, and she is weeping over the letter, and the man is playing the bagpipes to give part to to encourage her. So um, pain of parting and then pain of of hearing perhaps bad news uh, from home. Deception and disappointment. Disappointed expectations, I think, could trigger mental illness among emigrants. I think this is irrespective of ethnicity. I don't think there's any particular link here. A tradesman writing who'd gone from Dundee out to uh, Dunedin in 1873 wrote home, I regret, I believe, the lying handbooks of New Zealand. Um, And then, again, back to our Canadian theme. Just listen to this uh, emigrant from Aberdeenshire writing home in 1903 from Red Deer in Alberta in the same vein. After a lapse of nearly four months in this wild country, I am very much discouraged. My mind is so full that I can hardly write as I'd like to. Our train was a special with about 400 on board, going out west to make their fortunes. Fortunes, did I say? Well, if the truth were told, many of them come out to eke out a miserable existence, and so far as I personally am concerned, it, Red Deer, is the last place on God's earth that I would care to remain in. But what is a fellow to do? Unquote. In other words, I'm stuck. Now, I think some of the most disappointed emigrants on the planet in the 19th century must have been those who trotted after the um, gold rushes in various locations, uh, travelled the world in a vain search for gold. Now, I've yet to discover any explicit reference to insanity being the consequence of disappointment at the diggings, but I have come across circumstantial evidence to suggest this, at least with reference to men who went to the Australian gold rush, and I found it in the Presumption of Life Limitation Act files. And then we have those who were disappointed, well, what was in the 19th century called disappointed in love. Um, that was the phrase used of a 37-year-old Scottish cook who spent five years in the asylum in London in Ontario with, quote-unquote, chronic mania that manifested itself in suicidal tendencies, but it was said he'd been disappointed in love. And then others had you know, financial trouble, pecuniary embarrassment was often the, the phrase used. Uh, domestic trouble was, a, was another phrase. So pain of parting... Voyage experiences like Mrs. Robertson losing, well, Rob, losing her life or the family of Mrs. Robertson having to watch her being put over the side. Uh, deception and disappointment. Environment could be another migration-related trigger. Sometimes mental illness was related, was connected to environmental and social conditions. For example, the, the shock of readjustment could destabilise migrants. Just to quick give you one example from the Arctic fur trade in the, the 19th century. And 
The white wives of fur traders in the Arctic found it a, a lonely and alien place. Um, Eliza Todd's husband was to have taken her up to the Columbia district in 1838, but she began to show signs of mental illness even en route, and she got worse after she'd had a baby. Now, her husband would have taken her back to England if he'd not had to go and take charge of one of the posts, the Hudson Bay Company post. And while she was at that post, she became so deranged that it was feared that she would harm herself and her child. And her husband couldn't get help to look after her because the native people were terrified of her. But the following year, he did get her out to England, and she was put in a mental um, asylum in England. And her husband returned to Canada eventually, uh, well, that year, and he never saw her again, and he eventually took a country wife um, whom he married legally um, after Eliza had died in 1857. And I think there is an element, there's certainly an element there of environmental issues affecting Eliza's state of mind. Um, another related trigger, uh, migration-related trigger, would be homesickness. Now, homesickness didn't always manifest itself immediately. Sometimes it needed a life-changing trigger like uh, childbirth or the death of a parent back home, the illness of the migrant, or simply it could, sometimes it could simply be a celebration like Christmas, you know, Christmas in, a, in an alien context. And sometimes homesickness could be serial and returning. And in Anthony Richmond's study of post-war migration to Canada, in, um, British migration to Canada, it accounted, homesickness accounted for the biggest proportion of those who returned to Britain in, in his sample. It was 28% of those. And it was felt most acutely among women, and for whom it was often a concomitant of isolation and, and loneliness and the fragmentation of the family networks. Uh, for the men, it was more likely to be associated with employment issues and the fear of a loss of identity. Um, fear, you know, if you had a failed in the workplace, if you became unemployed, it affected your identity. Okay, the medical perspective. Uh, he's not a medic, as you might have guessed. I'll tell you a bit about him in a minute. Um, mental illness uh, manifested itself in, in various ways, uh, described at the time in three main recurring terms. And, um, this is like calls to Newcastle, I know, in this audience. Um, mania, melancholia, and dementia, but also presenting in intemperance, suicide, and criminal activity. And the doctors attributed these manifestations of disease to a set of causes, um, some of which overlap with the migration-related triggers that I've just been uh, alluding to. Um, and in fact, often symptoms and, and causes were conflated. Predisposition and heredity were often brought up. Um, it was a common argument that some migrants were predisposed to mental instability and that this mental instability was demonstrated through their very desire to migrate, the, the, the kind of rolling stone mentality. And the asylum records do offer some insights here on, um, in, in what they say about heredity and whether other family members were insane. And often there is, there's a, a list of other people who were uh, in other institutions in, maybe back in the, the uh, home country. And it's something that's frequently mentioned in the Ontario records that I dipped into about a year ago. Uh, perhaps it's most, the most frequently mentioned uh, predisposing cause. And I found it also mentioned among return migrants, migrants who came back to Scotland and ended up in asylums in Scotland. Um, won't go into specific detail because of the time. Now, uh, the, 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 there's another question here um, about ethnicity. Was, it, was heredity linked with ethnicity in contemporary thinking in terms of triggers for insanity? Because... Asylum records also illuminate for us the way in which doctors and maybe by extension the, the host society at large uh, stereotyped different ethnic groups and implicitly 
usually implicitly rather than explicitly, um, attributed some of those foibles to their ethnicity. I, I came across the, the, again in the uh, Ontario records, in London, Ontario, this guy Angus from the Hebrides, a 22-year-old labourer, admitted to the asylum in 1881. Now, unlike other Scots, he wasn't just described as a Scot, he was described as coming from the Isle of Lewis. Now, why did they say, why did they actually specify that he was a Hebridean rather than just saying he was a Scot, like all the other Scots? And sometimes the comments came from the migrants themselves. I mean, just to jump across to the other side of the world for a minute to the work that Angela's done in Dunedin, um, she came across a, a Highlander, Daniel, um, well, Perthshire Highlander, who'd been in New Zealand for 48 years and was in the asylum, and he attributed his illness to, be, to having, and as he said, too much Highland blood in me. So he said it was because he was a Highland Scot. Now, in the um, eugenics-dominated debate before the de decade, sorry, before the First World War, the Canadians were preoccupied with the idea that weak-minded Britons, um, immigrants from Britain, were polluting their society and draining their economy um, because they didn't fall under the, the current deportation laws. But this is particularly the English, and the round of, well, particularly in, in 1907, um, a lot of unemployed English migrants were, were flooding into Canada. And they linked the alleged preponderance of what they called, quote-unquote, English defectives in the admission registers of the Toronto asylums to the, again quoting, the wholesale clearing out, cleaning out sorry, of the slums of English cities. So that's moving away from the Scots a bit. Now, the reason I've got Andrew MacDonnell, that's his name, up on the screen there, is because of the example I want to give you from Scotland from the 1920s. Because I think it is a clear example of ethnic prejudice against the Scots, against Highland Scots. Now, Andrew MacDonnell was a somewhat maverick agent, and I could spend an hour talking about him. In the 1920s, he was bringing in large numbers of Outer Hebrideans to Alberta in a move that provoked huge controversy from all quarters and opposition. And it included a letter that was sent to a Toronto newspaper complaining, saying that um, before assisting... Because he did this under the Empire Settlement Act. And this letter said, now, before assisting Scots to come to the Outer Hebrides, uh, come from the Outer Hebrides to Canada, the Immigration Department should take a look at Cape Breton have, and take note of what the Highlanders who'd come to Cape Breton a century earlier had done for Canada and for themselves. And in the opinion of this correspondent, they'd done precious little because he went on to argue that the descendants of those Scots in the Maritimes were living in poverty, living contentedly in poverty, and were filling up the asylums of Nova Scotia. Now, I think that was maybe a two-pronged and linked prejudice. It was a two-pronged and linked attack against poverty and against ethnic background, and you know, the two were very clearly linked in the criticism of MacDonnell's policy. Religious excitement. Sometimes the asylum books indicate, quote Five minutes, okay. Uh, religious excitement or religious fervour as a predisposing factor, although it could be classified as a, as a migration-related trigger as much as a, a medical definition. Now, obviously, faith could be a comfort as well as a, a, a problem. It could be a, a spiritual, it could be a practical anchor, and it could be a balm that relieved the pain of parting. But it could also be um, a destabilising force. For example, uh, one of the Scots in an asylum I encountered in, in Ontario in the 1850s, he'd been convicted of murder, and it was attributed to, quote-unquote, religious excitement, and the form of disease was described as recurring mania. And two other Scots in the same asylum 
uh, both suffering from melancholia as the underlying form of illness um, had their acute episodes attributed to religious excitement. And I looked at the religious affiliations of the denominations of those people. Um, one of them was Plymouth Brethren and another one was Methodist. And not, so I'm just wondering if there's a link there with the nonconformist denominations. And one of the things I want to do when I'm looking at Cape Breton is look at the differences between the Catholic and the Protestant uh, communities there. There is, of course, as I hinted at earlier, the question of disingenuous motives among both the host and the, ho- the home and the host nations. Now, it had always been the case that colonial authorities complained that Britain was exporting the flotsam and jetsam rather than the, the flower of the population, and this continued in, with, with respect to uh, people with alleged mental illness in the period I'm looking at. Um, we find in the Canadian deportation records, as well as in the immigration department records, um, debates in the correspondence about migrants who had Ill- allegedly exhibited symptoms of insanity before they'd even left home, or people who'd been in asylums at home. It's, a, it's a, the modern version of the shoveling out the paupers idea. Taking um, a different perspective, uh, and, and of course the, the, the bottom line was always money, public charge, as we, as we were hearing yesterday. Um, Taking the, the different, a different perspective, the issue of people being incarcerated in asylums when they're in fact sane is, has been addressed in a recent novel by Marilyn Bowering um, called What It Takes to Be Human. And with about two minutes left, I won't say any more about that, but it's, uh, that relates to um, the British Columbia experience. Finally, um, Canadian policy and practice, um, detention, exclusion and uh, de- uh, expulsion I say I'm going to be looking at Canada, I'm just embarking on this part of the study. How did Canada address the issue of the dysfunctional migrant? Well, I've already mentioned that the deportation was was more intense with respect to Canada than other parts of the Commonwealth, and mental incapacity was a key ground for deportation. Um, I'll miss out the evolution of asylums because that's just descriptive. Exclusion, the first priority, uh, the first objective was to prevent the entry of, in the first place of people who were perceived to be uh, dysfunctional. And again, that's fairly self-evident, so we'll leave it. Um, the final area that I want to just spend the last couple of minutes on would be deportation as a medical, political and um, economic weapon. Some people slipped through the net, others became ill after entry, and deportation became a favourite weapon of the Canadian federal authorities after it was introduced in 1887. It was strengthened by further legislation in 1906. And uh, that extended the scope of those who were to be denied entry and provided for the removal of any immigrant who'd become a public charge um, within two years or an inmate of a hospital or or jail. Um, The father of Canadian psychiatry, a man called um, Dr. C.K. Clark, the anti-Semitic Dr. Clark, took things further in 1910 by routinely seeking to deport migrants who'd ended up in asylums. And there's evidence in the asylum records of those, of those deportations. And he wanted, among other things, to double the period of time in, within which authorities could revoke immigrant status from uh, two to, to four years. It was actually extended to three and then to five years in, in 1919. Um, now, at this time, the, the issue of deportation... Deportation, like exclusion, was managed by doctors, mainly by doctors, and the criteria were medical criteria. And this is, I think, one of the key points. Now, that was the case around about 1900, but by 1920s, the doctors had lost their autonomy 
in making those decisions because medical standards were increasingly displaced by political and economic criteria. Power was increasingly taken out of the hands of the medics and it was concentrated in the hands of the immigration department's mandarins. I mean, money had always been an issue, but it became a much more explicit issue. The traditional view of that period of the, the 20s was to see, is to see deportation as a way of controlling radicals and expelling surplus labour. But revisionist scholarship in the 1980s, not least by Barbara Roberts, um, attributed it more to Canadian public resistance to paying for a social service infrastructure, um, an infrastructure that would have to be developed to support those people, particularly during, during recessions. Deportation and ethnicity, just for uh, very briefly um, a few sort of points uh, to conclude. Was deportation an ethnic weapon that hammered those from the British Isles? I don't know yet because this is one of the functions of the research. I want to look at it through the lens of ethnicity. And ethnicity is so far fun uh, focused mainly on non-Western nationalities. So what I'm saying is really uh, speculative. A little bit of work's been done by Kevin James at Guelph, and he's identified the um, English as being disproportionately represented among deportees. 28% uh, of immigrants, 48% uh, of deportees. The, the Irish and the Scots are much more, uh, it's much more balanced. Um, now, that probably doesn't have anything to do with uh, the mental health-related deportation. It's more to do with the, the, the volume and the public charge side of it. Now, um, no, that's, I'll leave that. No, just, just, just to uh, say a couple of points to, to finish with. I mentioned the children at the beginning. This one of my scenarios was that the institutionalised child migrant sent out to, to Canada. I think a particular, well, uh, yes, certainly a particularly controversial part um, of the phenomenon within a British ethnic slant was the deportation of children who'd been sent out by orphanages and other institutions, children who were perceived as the flotsam and jetsam of Britain's metropolitan slums. Um, Ontario legislation in 1897 had already tried to make it a crime or had made it a, tried to keep them out by making it a crime to bring into the province any child of quote-unquote defective intellect or defective physique. And I've done quite a bit of work, yeah, uh, a bit of work on quarriers' homes in, in Bridge of Weir near Glasgow, and they suggest that 4% of the 7,000 children who were sent to Canada in this period were later sent back to Scotland or to some other part of the British Isles for uh, reasons of physical or mental illness. Um, Childcare specialists in interwar Canada claimed that British child migrants were disproportionately depraved, eugenically contaminated, and hence uh, supposedly threatened Canadian stock by ending up in hospitals and asylums uh, and prisons, becoming a drain on Canadian taxpayers. So the final point really is we're back to the question of money. At the end of the day, it's cost and public charge that governs attitudes. Thank you.